For this is the day that the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and be glad in it. It is so good to see each and every one of you on this Lord's Day. For those of you who may not know, my name is Brandon Reddick, and I have the pleasure, privilege, and honor of serving at, here as the lead pastor. Um, on behalf of all of our staff, our members, and all of those who make up the body uh, of the Bridge Church, we say welcome. And as Pastor Dominic has already asked, I would uh, repeat, if you would uh, complete a bridge card, that would be a, uh, a great help to us. We just simply want to say thank you for being with us. Uh, and so complete those and uh, at the end of the service when we dismiss there will be a box right outside the doors where you can return those let's get to work our assignment today is first samuel uh 9 10 11 and 12. so <laughs> hope you brought your sack of lunch first samuel we'll do 9 10 11 and 12 for uh, the hearing of God's word, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 10, actually. 1 Samuel chapter number 10, we'll begin in verse number 20. 1 Samuel chapter number 10, we'll begin at verse 20. And where are we going, Caitlin? 11.13, thank you. Thank you. We were supposed to do this last week, so uh, let's try it one more time. First Samuel, chapter number 10, beginning with verse 20. Once you've found it, let's stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. First Samuel, chapter 10, beginning with verse number 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you don't have it, you can follow along with us on the screens. 1 Samuel chapter number 10, beginning with verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him with men of valor whose hearts God had touched. 
But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? that they are weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, Saul when he heard these words, words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me help us catch up to where we are contextually. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter number 8, we learned that Israel asked for a king who would fight their battles. They were looking for deliverance from their enemies. Another word is they were looking for salvation from their enemies. They were looking and desired a king who would save them. They wanted a king to be their savior. 
And God said their request of a, for a king was a rejection of him as king. And because of their willful rebellion and rejection, God decided to give them what they asked for. They would indeed have a king like the nation. And this king would be an, an oppressor, an enslaver. He would be the king who takes and takes and takes. Even with that information, they persist in their call for a king. So in chapter 8, we have the petition, the request, the prayer for a king. In chapters 9 through 11, we're going to get the answer now to their prayer for a saving king. God is judging them. And once, on one hand, God is judging them for their rejection of him as king. But we will also see God's compassion and mercy for his people in this empowerment of a king. Let me, let me help you here. We've read so, there's so much text to cover. In chapters 9 through 11, the theme and the word that comes up time and time again is this word save. Save. Salvation. That's the focus of 9, 10, and 11. These people want, the people of Israel want to be saved from their enemies, the Philistines and now the Ammonites. They, and they said, we want a king, a human king to be our savior. And I think one of the interesting things that the author does is he contrasts what people want for salvation or what people look for to salvation, but what God does to work salvation. Those are my first two points. Let's look at the first one. We'll go through these quickly because we've got so much text to cover. Let's look first at what man looks to for salvation. Go back to chapter 9. When we look at chapter 9, we are introduced to a man by the name of Kish. Kish is the father of Saul. And the first thing that we learn about Kish is that he is a man of wealth. A man of wealth. Typically, when sharing someone's family of origin, it's not typical to include financial status. However, the narrator goes out of his way to tell us that Kish is a man of wealth. Why then does this narrator include this information? As we read the context, we're going to learn more and more about Saul that would make him an impressive individual, especially for a king. Saul would be someone that Israel would want for a king because of his wealthy background. 
the wealthy, the, were socially elite, highly regarded and respected, envied, desirable. So this would be a quality that would have set Saul apart from other candidates to be king. He would have been an impressive, acceptable candidate for king because of his financial class. Not only do men look to wealth for salvation, but they also look to outward appearance. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. It says that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul's appearance comes again in chapter 10, verse 23, which we read for our hearing this morning, when it says that Saul was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel even proclaims to the people about the king that they have asked for. Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And how does Israel respond to this tall, handsome fellow? Long live the king. They affirm that this is the man to save them from their enemies because he's literally head and shoulders above everyone else. They care more about his outward appearance than they do the inward man. They give no thought to his heart. His character doesn't matter at all. All they care about is having a king who looks like the nation's king. They don't care if he's holy. They don't care if he's righteous. They, don't, they just want him to be like the nation's. They want a savior in their own image. I want to press forward, but can I stop right here? Because this is going to come up again later on as we study 1 Samuel about the outward appearance. Are we just not like Israel a lot of times? Do we not also become captivated and mesmerized by a leader's outward appearance and earthly credentials and give little consideration to his character? Okay, let me prove it to you since y'all won't talk back to me this morning. The church, I believe, is still committing this error today. Just look at all the celebrity pastors the church drools over. And how many of these same celebrity pastors end up having some moral failure? Oftentimes, these issues could have been worked out if the church had did more heart work rather than just being captivated by his or her ability to speak or preach or, 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 or communicate. Beloved, I'm convinced that that's why the qualifications of a pastor, leader, elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are mostly character qualifications. The heart of a leader matters much more than his earthly credentials. Let me press forward. And only does, do men look to salvation for uh, for salvation, look to wealth and outward appearance, but also what I'm calling social status. Look at chapter 9, verse 21. 
Samuel has just revealed to Saul that upon him rests all of the hopes of Israel. Saul's response to this information in verse 21 says, whoa, 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 Samuel, I'm just a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel. And my clan is the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why are you talking about me in that way? Saul can't believe that he would be the fulfillment of Israel's hopes for a king. He, he comes from the smallest of the tribes, the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. In other words, Saul says, I don't have the social clout or background of other tribes and clans. So there's no way I could become king. My clan doesn't have enough influence in Israel. It doesn't have enough connections. It doesn't have the, 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 the right people on its side. That's what men look for, look to for salvation. Now, the text changes and shows us now how God works salvation. How God works salvation. God starts his work of saving Israel from their enemies through his divine providence. Say providence. The action of the narrative begins with Saul's father, Kish, telling his son, hey man, some of the donkeys are lost. Go get the donkeys. Go find the donkeys. And Saul takes a servant with him, and they travel from town to town looking, from, looking for some donkeys. And every town they come up to, they come up empty-handed. And Saul says, look, man, we, we looked, we traveled, we're coming up empty. Let's abandon this search because my father, it may get, he may stop caring about the donkeys now and start worrying and have anxiety about our well-being. The servant tells Saul that before they give up the search, they need to try one more thing. The servant says he knows of a man of God who is honored and truthful. So they go into the city and find the man of God by the name of Samuel. Now, the day before they were, had arrived to go see Samuel, the Lord had already revealed to Samuel that Saul was coming, and Saul was to be the man to be anointed to be king. And the Lord said he had a specific purpose for Saul as their leader. Chapter 9, verse 16, he says, Saul shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Saul is the man God has chosen for Israel to save his people from their enemies. The part, this, the story starts in chapter 9 with Saul looking for donkeys and ends with Saul finding Samuel. 
Saul is searching for donkeys and finds a destiny. Saul is searching for donkeys but finds a kingdom. God used the ordinary events of life, the mundane things of the world, to reveal Israel's king that would save them from their enemies. God is leading and guiding Saul along his way. Saul has no clue in this search for donkeys that he's about to become king. What's at work is God's divine providence. Providence is, is, is God's work of governing, leading, and guiding his creation. The events of Samuel chapter 9 are providential. They are providential. I said the events of 1 Samuel 9 are providential. They are not a coincidence. They are not random. They are not chance events. They are God-directed, God-involved, God-governed events. God is at work in the life of Saul, and he has no clue in the moment. And this is somebody needs to know you are going through the rut of life, the mon, uh, mundaneness of life. You have no idea what God is doing. And God's word to you this morning is that God is at work in your life even now. Whether you know it or not, God is at work. As we sang and said on last week, even when you can't see it, God is working. Even when you can't feel it, God is working. Even when you don't understand it, God is working. He's causing all things to work together for the good of those who love the Lord. It is God's providence that leads to salvation. It is God's providence. And, and, and even in my own life, I see God's hand, his providential hand bringing me to salvation. I was, he showed me, he, he, he put his grace on me and that he allowed me to be born into a preacher's family, a pastor's family. And I had a mother that, that brought me up in church and put me before the gospel every week so that at the age of nine or ten, I said yes to Jesus. I walked down the aisle, and some of y'all be like, walk down the aisle. Yeah, that's what we did. We put the chair after the sermon. We put the chair right down there, and you walk down the aisle, whether, whether it was for salvation, baptism, prayer, repentance, whatever it is, you had to walk down the aisle. And at the age of nine or ten, that's what I did. I walked down the aisle. And I, and I said yes to Jesus. And I said, baptize me, preach him. And it was not because I was so smart or that I was lucky. It was God's hand of providence leading me and guiding me. And some of you right now, it, it's, you can say, you look back over your life and say, it was God's providence that led me to where I am right now. I can even testify that me being here in Wichita had to be <laughs> divine providence. Me planting and pastoring a multi-ethnic church is God's providence. 
because this, this, this man here grew up in the hood of Waxahachie. Y'all like, Waxahachie who? <laughs> exactly. Here, here is God. I'm in the, the, the hood. Right? I'm not in government uh, housing, but I am right next to the projects in government subsidized housing. And the statistics, Ms. Veronica, say by the time if I graduated, I should have been in prison, had some kind of record, had multiple children that I was not providing for. That's what the statistics said, but God's providence said not so. Watch this. I'm in the hood. The good life is you go work in the local factory. I'm just testifying. I'm, I'm all off my manuscript. I, I, the, 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 the story of men and where I came from was it is when you hit the good life is you graduate from high school, you go work in the local factory until your body says, I've had enough, you retire and die. And so when, 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 when people ask me, what you going to be when you grow up, you know, a preacher, <laughs> what else do you say? Here's what God was doing. In the sixth grade, he, he introduced me to a young man, that would, a young boy at the time, who would come to be my best friend. He looked nothing like me, talked nothing like me. He, he had that deep South accent. And where I'm from, anybody that got that kind of accent, you run the other way. He didn't think like me, talk like me. Look like me. We both look chubby. But besides that, we were, he didn't look like me. But his family, this white family says, they wrapped their arms around this boy from the hood and they would drive into the hood and take me with them and do life with them. Oh, hey, praise God. This is nice. And then one day they asked me, where are you going to school? And so I didn't look like a fool. I just started naming off, rattling off some schools. Had no idea where I was going to school or if I was going to school. And then God led me to a place called Texas A&M University. And listen, whatever, first of all. <laughs> but I get to Texas A&M University, culture shock. Because that best friend that I had, it was 15,000 of them. Good Texas A&M University, meet this wonderful woman, marry her. God's providence once again. Get called into ministry. After that, I go to a school called Dallas Theological Seminary because I got the burning, now I need some learning. Go to Dallas Theological Seminary, which back in the 60s were not allowing people that looked like me to get into the seminary. And so we said, we're going to put them down in the south part of Dallas and give them their own school so they don't come to our school and mess up our name and reputation. I met Dallas Theological Seminary. We just started allowing black people a few decades ago. And while I'm there, I get the opportunity to preach to the whole campus, and then God starts opening doors. I'm, I'm preaching to First Baptist Euless. Listen, whenever you hear First Baptist, I'm going to tell you right now what it looks like. Not like me. It looks like Texas A&M. But God put me up there preaching before First Baptist. All right, I'm going to do my best, God. 
From there, I'm, I'm no longer preaching. He moved me from First Baptist, and now I'm preaching in front of, at a Korean youth camp. And they offer me ramen. I'm like, I don't want no ramen. I grew up on ramen noodles. What do you mean? Why are you giving me ramen? It's 25 cents a bag. I, I done ate that all my life. I don't want no ramen. And I get down like, this ain't the same ramen. <laughs> yeah, I passed that on over. God is, I'm preaching to white people. I'm preaching to Asians. The, the Hispanics are on their way. They don't know me yet. I'm preaching to black people. And I, I'm just like, God, thank you. Not knowing what he is doing. Until 2014 comes along and I get to Wichita, Kansas. They are interviewing me for a church planting. And by the way, let me even tell you this. This is God's hands of providence because in the, where I came from, church planting means uh, some two pastors or two preachers had got in an argument, had a fight, and there was a split. Church planting was never for, 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 for uh, reaching the lost. It was because somebody had made me mad or they were too old-fashioned, too traditional, and we want to do our own thing now. But God brings me to Wichita in 2014. They ask me, what kind of church you going to plant? And I say, not a black one, a multi-ethnic one. I had no, and in some ways it came out before I, it was one of those times I had a cunning moment. I spoke before I thought. Did I say that out loud? I just did it. My bad. God was working. So my, here's my whole point of telling you my whole story. The Bridge Church exists because of God's divine providence. It wasn't a good idea, Brandon. God was doing it. God was working it. And all of you can look over your lives right now and look back and say, that was God's hand. I, couldn't, I didn't know it. I couldn't see it. I was even frustrated with God, mad at God. But look at what God has done. All right, God's, he, lead, he works salvation through his divine providence. But God also works salvation through his word. Somebody say word. <clears throat> Saul meets Samuel. Samuel invites Saul and his servant to a feast. After eating, they retreat to bed. The next day, Samuel tells them, wake up so I can send you out of, on your way. And Samuel tells Saul to send. He says, send your servant ahead. I need to talk to you. And I specifically need to tell you God's word that was made known to me. I need to talk to you privately. The word of the Lord came to Saul through Samuel was that Saul was to be the king of Israel and would save them from the hand of their enemies. God establishes a kingdom that will save Israel by his word. God was working salvation for Israel through the power of his word. Beloved, is that, not how, is that not how God still works salvation for his people today? 
Let me call off the road real quick. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. James chapter 1, verse 21 says, so get rid of all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says that we are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here's my little simple point. God still works salvation through the power of his word. His word, church, gives life. It sustains life and it leads to eternal life. Beloved, you came here today because you need a word from the Lord. If you need direction throughout life's journey, the word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. God's word sanctifies. Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be sanctified by the truth. And here's what Jesus said, your word is truth. Beloved, not only does God's word save, not only does it sanctify, God's word edifies as well. It's effective. When it comes out of God's mouth, it does not return void or empty, but it accomplishes his purpose and succeeds in the thing for which he sent it. Beloved, God, God works through his word and his word does his work. So what, Reverend? I'm glad you asked. Share God's word then. If you believe it, share it. It brings the spiritually dead back to life. Not only should you share God's word, but listen to God's word. Ooh, y'all like this a plug? No, it's not. Listen to God's word. Beloved, you ought to value the proclaimed, preached word of God. This is not the time to play uh, uh, games on Facebook. This is not the time to get distracted. This is not the time to hope and wish that he would just be done. We have to learn to value the word of God because when God's word goes forth, things happen. Listen, we learned this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. It is, and here's what happened. And God said, his word goes forth and chaos turns into order. When God speaks, things are created. There is power in God's word. So there's somebody, who your life is out of control right now. What you need is God's word to bring some order into that chaos. You need direction and wisdom right now. I dare you to get into God's word. God's word does God's work. So we've got to learn to value the word of God. When it's being read, when it's being preached, when it's being sang, We've got to value it. But then we also have to submit to God's word and trust in God's word. Let me move on. How often does God work salvation? He works salvation through his spirit. He works salvation through his spirit. Chapter 10, Samuel tells, tells Saul that one of the signs that will come upon him 
to confirm his appointment as king is that the spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. And when the spirit comes upon him, that spirit will enable him, gift him with the ability to prophesy. The text says he will turn into another man. Oh, that's not even in my transcript, but that gave me joy right now. Listen, I don't want y'all, I'm scared to know Brandon without the Spirit. God's Spirit recreates and turns people into new men and women. He says when God's Spirit comes up on you, he will be able to do whatever his hands find to do because God will be with him. Later on in chapter 11, Israel has a new enemy, the Ammonites under the leadership of Nahash. Nahash has determined to assault them by gouging out their right eyes and defeating them. One so the people of Israel hear this, they start weeping because they are scared and afraid. So Saul comes from the field and asks, why everybody so sad? And after hearing what Nahash has said that he wants to do to Israel, the text says that the spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And his anger was greatly kindled. And the next day, Saul, under the power of God's spirit, led Israel to defeat the Ammonites. And Saul said in verse 13 that it was the Lord who worked salvation in Israel. God accomplished Israel's salvation through a spirit-empowered king. It was not by the king's might, nor by the king's power, but by the king of king's spirit that saved Israel. Is that still not how God worked salvation through another king who he empowered with his spirit? Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19 Jesus says this about himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is the spirit-empowered king who saved God's people, not by might nor by power, but with the help of God's spirit, he lived a sinless life here on earth. By God's spirit, Christ suffered the humiliation of crucifixion. By God's spirit, he endured the agony of the cross. He died on the cross, went into the grave, but by God's power, he rose from the grave so that now all who believe will be saved from God's wrath and be granted eternal life. By God's spirit, Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death. He is the new spirit-empowered king who saves whomsoever will. 
God's spirit brings new life. God's spirit transforms. God's spirit will give you victory over enemies. God's spirit is something, is someone we don't have to be afraid of. God's Spirit is someone who we don't think had, uh, went away at the end of the Bible. God's spirit is someone who is still working and moving and changing and transforming and recreating and renewing right now, today. If you don't understand what happened last week, let me just tell you, it was all God's spirit. We need God's spirit today. The only way to accomplish God's will is through the power of his spirit. We read in chapter 10, verse 27, the question was, some of, they said there were some worthless fellows. Said They looked at Saul and was like, how can this man save us? Here's the answer. With God's help. Saul was able to save because God changed him, turned him into another man by his spirit. God gave him his word. God was leading and guiding him. How can that man save us? With God's help. That's how God saves even today through his word, through his spirit, through his providence. And through a spirit-empowered king by the name of Jesus. One more chapter and I'm done. Move on to chapter 12. Samuel's on his way out. He says, I'm old. It's time for me to get out of here. He established that he is a man of character. But before Samuel, his final farewell address is actually a word of indictment on the people of God. He says, let me tell you a story. And essentially, he recounts the righteous deeds and works of God's people, of God for his people. And he tells them, here's essentially your history. There's been a crisis. You, you've been oppressed, you've been enslaved, you've been uh, under the hand of an enemy. So that was the crisis, and then you cried out to me. And I heard your cry, so I came and I delivered you. We would think that would be the end of the story, but there's a fourth piece of the story. You forgot me. That's your history as a people. Crisis, cry, deliverance, forget. And he says right now, that's where we are. There was a crisis. You had an enemy called the Philistines. You cried out to me. And when you cried, though this time, actually you didn't cry. You made a demand of me. And that demand was, give us a king. And when you did that, you rejected me as king. You are under God's judgment. 
Those whom God continually delivers, God continually saves. You've forgotten me. You've forsaken me. You've rejected me. Listen, aren't y'all so glad that God is not a man? Because if, if God, if I were God by now, I'd be like, I'm done with y'all. You get what you deserve. That's called justice. But here is God, even in the midst of their rejection, he says, I'm going to provide a way for you to return to me. God, hold on, God, 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 God. What would make you allow, give a people who have rejected you the, the, the opportunity to return to you. You got to read this. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Go fast. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 22. It's not going to be on the screen because I didn't give it to our people. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. Here's what Samuel says to the people. He's already told them, don't be afraid. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Why does the Lord keep giving his people another chance? Because God does not forsake his people. He is a faithful God. Every morning, his mercies are new. And even though his people are being unfaithful right now, God says, I'm still going to remain faithful. I am so glad I don't serve a fickle God. But he says, if I said I was going to do it, I'm going to do it. God must be true to his word. He is a faithful God. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises so that even when we start acting a fool, God says, I still got to keep my word. God will not forsake his people. And there, there ought to be somebody in here who say, oh, I know that's true because I've been young and now I'm old, but never have I seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. That ought to be the testimony of somebody. You, can, you might still be young, but in the 37 years of your life, you ought to be able to say, never have I seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. How do I know he's still doing that because y'all woke up this morning. It wasn't promised to you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it, but he still woke you up, started you on your way, got you here to church on a Sunday morning. He still, he has not forsaken his people. How I know it because y'all look like y'all eat good, like you live good. He's not forsaken his people. You still got clothes on your back, shoes on your feet, a roof over your head. He's not forsaken his people. You still in the land of the living. He, he has not forsaken his people. Made it through a pandemic. Even when I got COVID, COVID didn't take me out. He has not forsaken his people. He's that kind of God. He's faithful. But he says he also does it for his great name's sake. <laughs> Hallelujah. Y'all, my prayer every Sunday morning, I say, Lord, for the sake of your great name, use me, Lord. 
I know I'm an unworthy vessel. I know I have so many failures and faults, but God, for the sake of your great name, Lord, I, I was, let me see, let me see, let me get, come on, musicians, come on up here. If y'all come, I'll stop. Maybe. I'm wondering, why in the world, listen, I'm thinking about, I just told y'all, I came up in government-subsidized housing. It had to be subsidized because my mama couldn't afford to rent on her own. But yet, when school, when it came time to start the new school year, and when Christmas came around, I had some of the best stuff. I had name brand shirts, name brand clothes, uh, pants. I had, sh oh, them shoes, that's it right there. I had Nikes and whatever else we had back then. And I'm thinking to myself, when it came time for Christmas, I knew she couldn't afford what everybody else was getting their kids, but yet I had me some good Christmases, y'all. I'm thinking to myself, going back to school, how is it that, and, and, and my, mom, my mama, she wouldn't let me go out any kind of way. Because my mama knew that when you go out, you represent me. You represent the Reddick name. So I'm not going to send you out any kind of way. I'm going to make some sacrifices so that you can be blessed. I'm going to make some sacrifices so that you can represent the name well. Is that not what God did for us? For his own name, he made a sacrifice of sacrifices by sending Jesus, his only begotten son, to die our death that we deserve. Why did he do it? For his great name's sake so that he would get the glory, so that he would get the honor, so that the world would know that he is the Lord. It's for his great name. Why does God keep allowing these people to return even though they've rejected him because of his name? He wants the whole world to know that he is the Lord. So how then do they return? Verse 14 Chapter 12, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord, what, is, what are the duties of the delivered? Fear the Lord. What does that look like? Serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it would be well. What is the duty of the delivered? What are the responsibilities of the redeemed to fear the Lord? What does that look like? Serve him. This is worship language. This is about being devoted to the Lord and him exclusively. And when I say worship, remember here at the bridge, we, we don't say worship. When we say worship, we don't mean just coming together and singing. That is an element of worship. But worship, we say, is the total surrender to God of every aspect of daily life. 
How do we fear the Lord? We worship him in every area of our life. We surrender to him. We turn from every other God and serve him alone. What does it look like to fear the Lord? We serve him exclusively. We serve him loyally and faithfully. And we obey his voice. We obey God's word. We obey from what comes out of the mouth of God. We no longer we turn from rebelling against God. And God says, if you do this, you and your king. For you and your king, it will be well. These people are now having to live in the tension. We got us a human king, but what they need to realize is that God has not abdicated his throne. He's still king of kings. And just because they have a human king doesn't mean that they no longer have responsibilities to their divine king. And their divine king says, you need to still remember that you, that you owe your life to me. This is about commitment to the Lord our God. What is the duty of the delivered? To die to self and to live a life wholly devoted and pleasing to God. And right now, for the saved people, what you need to do is evaluate your heart, your life. Am I living under the fear of, with the fear of the Lord? Am I worshiping Him exclusively? Am I serving Him? Am I, am I obeying Him without reservation even when I don't understand it even when I don't agree with it I still have a duty to come under his authority and do what he says to do that is the responsibility of the redeemed people of God to live in so much awe of the Lord you see him for who he is holy majestic and glorious and you see yourself as a man or woman who is unworthy to stand in his presence but yet you know you are welcome into his presence because of a great high priest by the name of Jesus Christ who has made atonement by his blood so that you can enter into the throne room boldly and with confidence and you live with that awe, but you remember he is a holy God. So there ought to be this, this reverence of God that says, I don't want to mess up with him. But knowing that I will and when I do, he still welcomes me with compassion and mercy and love. Worship team, you can come back. We serve a God who is ready to save a people for himself, for his great namesake, for his glory. There may be somebody in this room or on this stream that you need to be saved 
not from just an enemy, but you need to be saved from God himself. Because as we are on our own, we stand under God's wrath. And that's what we need saved from, the wrath of God, because we have sinned against a holy God. And so God comes today. He has providentially led you here to hear that he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die your death, was buried, rose on the third day, victoriously from the grave. And if you will believe, put your trust and hope in him, you will be saved from God's wrath. Somebody else in this room You've, been, you, you've said yes to Jesus, but yet you are continually met with new enemies. These enemies are more spiritual. Enemies that, enemies of sin, lust, addiction, pride, envy, jealousy, all these works of the flesh. God says, I stand ready to deliver you from those enemies and I'm going to do it by giving you my spirit reminding you that you have, have my spirit in you and through my spirit you can overcome the works of the flesh but we got to be like Israel in chapter 12 when they are confronted with their unfaithfulness they confess their sin and they plead for God's mercy. So somebody else in this room today, the call for you is to repent. And that starts with confessing your sin and running to the cross for God's mercy. For others, we are called today to look at what, what do we run to for deliverance? What are we putting our hope in today? Israel looked for an outward appearance, wealth, social status and we too have empty things that we run to that have no value that have no benefit but yet we run to them looking for salvation and God says salvation belongs to me let's stand to our feet